We look at uh, week six, so we continue in uh, the stories. We have uh, talked about the Bible as uh, a book, a library of books, but with one message, and that one message is, is about God. It's about God who, uh, who is by nature, by Trinitarian nature, by being Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is desiring and wanting to be in relationship and creates out of the overflow of that love and that desire for relationship. And even when we fail, even when humans fail, is on the move, has a plan to redeem the world. And so right now when we're here, it, the plan doesn't look to be going so well. I think we could admit. God called a nation, called them Israel. Uh, he delivered them from captivity in Egypt as slaves, led them through the wilderness into the promised land, gave them a land he promised to Abram 750 years earlier, and then set up a, made a people of the, this group, of these, this extended family. Remember, Israel is an extended family. Greeks, 12 tribes. Each one, the descendants of, jo uh, 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 of Jacob, Israel. And these 12 tribes come together, first loosely joined, and then under centralized authority, first Saul, then David, then Solomon. We talked last week about how uh, it kind of worked under David. And you'll see, we'll talk a little bit more about David's long shadow, especially in the southern kingdom. And under Solomon, it worked at first, but Solomon, through many foreign alliances, and that's what his marriages were, uh, became involved even in other religions, other idols, forsaking the worship of the one true God. We see signs of failure when, uh, when uh, Jeroboam is anointed, even in the midst of Solomon's reign, that one day you will bring release to the northern tribes, and then at Solomon's death that happens. Son Rehoboam consults with his younger friends. The elders tell him, lighten up the load, because you see, Solomon had built that great temple at great expense, and uh, it had uh, bankrupted the people. In fact, uh, we think of Solomon, and, and the Bible attests that Solomon was wise and wealthy, and money just kept flowing in. Do you remember that? Just kept flowing in. But scholars suspect that because of the level of taxation and the level of inequality, that uh, the ordinary people were probably uh, no better off during Solomon's reign. There was a lot of tension, and when Rehoboam decided that my father disciplined you with whips, I will discipline you with scorpions, which is funny. Uh, the ten northern tribes decide, this really isn't for us, and they leave. Now they attempt to fight a war. Rehoboam attempts to recapture them, but in fact it is God himself who intervenes and says, this is of me. And so they live as separate ten and two uh, for um, 300 or so years. And then... Israel in 7, uh, 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 722 is, is their capital, Samaria, which was, uh, which was built as a second capital, which was built as a capital um, under the northern, in the northern kingdom's age, uh, is sacked by the Assyrians. They are, bar they are, they are bloodthirsty, violent people. And uh, remember, the leaders are taken off to Assyria, 
and then uh, then the poor are left, and then the Assyrians bring people in to intermarry with them, and uh, that exile never ends, never ends. And the, we call those the lost tribes of Israel. So that's Northern Kingdom. But now we're going to talk. We're going to we're going to pull the tape back, and instead of looking at Jeroboam and the Northern Kingdom, we're going to look at Rehoboam and the Southern Kingdom. Now, I don't know how many of you read this week. But did you notice that it looked a little different when you read about the southern kings and the northern kings? What, what would we say were, was true about the northern kings? They were evil. They were, evil. were there any good ones? No, there were some that occasionally were good, but then they were evil. Evil. <laughs> Every one of them. Why were they evil? What, do you remember what was, the, what was kind of the root cause of the, the problems in the northern kingdom? Too many gods. Too many gods. What, what happened? So Jeroboam, remember this, he pulls away and he says, well, that's great. I'm now in charge of this area, but, but where's their temple? In Jerusalem. Where's Jerusalem? In the southern kingdom. So he's like, wait, we, we, we need a religion that's homegrown, right? So he does. Okay. This ends up being a problem. In fact, repeatedly, we talked last week that the Bible speaks about how they, the king persisted or continued in the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. So things were a little different in the south. Uh, in fact, we hear with Rehoboam, the judgment we already find it's maybe just a little questionable. Rehoboam, then, uh, when, when Jeroboam begins his kind of new religion, the one of the, with the calves and all, Rehoboam brings all the Levites who are kind of scattered around, brings them all uh, to Jerusalem and kind of consolidates the, uh, the temple, the, the cult, uh, and I mean that in a technical term, not in the way we think about it today, of Yahweh in Jerusalem. And, and when you do that, when you consolidate that religiously, what also happens to be the, the, the effect uh, is you've consolidated religion, you've also consolidated your own power. And so they bring, he brings kind of it all there into uh, Jerusalem. And that would be great. So we'd say Rehoboam, king of the year. But what we find is he has a nasty habit of saying we're also going to bring in some other gods. So he says he built high places, pillars, and brought in male temple prostitutes, which we talked about last week are signs of the surrounding pagan uh, religion. I think there's an interesting moment in 1 Kings where it mentions that King Shishak of Egypt comes and steals the golden shields. You may or may not remember that story. But what's interesting is then Rehoboam replaces them. These were golden shields built during the age of Solomon. He replaces them. Do you remember how he replaces them? With bronze shields. Now that's interesting. You know, why, why is that interesting? What do you think that's telling you right there? What? They're less valuable. We're already seeing kind of, I, I think we're, that's a sign that the writer includes. This is just me talking, could be wrong. I think that's a sign of the devaluation of the temple and of the following of Yahweh under uh, Rehoboam. And we see more kings. And if you look at your chart you have, you'll notice a difference. 
If you look at Israel, it talks about uh, that it kind of gives you the, 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 the placement of the king in the previous king's life. So Jeroboam the one was a servant, was kind of an overseer for Solomon. Nadab was his son, uh, Basha, and then Elah. Zimri was a captain. What does that mean? Not a son. That's a, that's a military takeover. And so with Israel, it's captain, son, captain, son, 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 captain, son. You get the idea that it was an uncomfortable place there in Israel. Every few years, there'd be a revolt and you'd have a new family in charge. But pay very close attention to Judah. Almost every one of them is a son. And why does that matter? Because in the south, they maintain the Davidic line. And so it's interesting. There are, there are coups. Do you remember the coups in Judah? Uh, do you remember after Ahaziah dies, after a rather short reign? Uh, uh, turns out mother is waiting, and she kills the rest of the family. <laughs> so she could be in charge. The women are tough in the Old Testament. That's all I can say. And then what do we find? That Athaliah, the mother's sister, saved Joash, the son of the king who just died, and kind of spirits him away. And then eventually they discover Joash is living, apparently, and Athaliah was not exactly queen of the year, and so they conspire with uh, the guards, then pronounce Joash now, I believe, the age of seven. They pronounce him as king. And uh, she comes down and she finds they are saluting a new king. She shouts treason and they kill her. There you go. So like, there's still some violence, don't worry. There's still coups, but the coups always serve to install another Davidic monarch. Remember that. That monarchy, that family line is important. Remember, what does God what does God promise David? A descendant of yours will sit on the throne of his ancestor David. Right? And so what we see here is they, they feel pretty good about this when it comes down to it. And Joash starts out really well, incidentally. Um, he's, a, uh, he's got uh, Jehoiada. Je I don't know how to pronounce that name. Jehoiada dies. He is the priest that it was kind of the leader of this revolt against Athaliah. And then when Joiada dies, he's 130. Uh, it turns out that the other officials of Joash say, you know what? Um, I know you've repaired the temple and done all these things to promote Yahweh worship, but have you considered idols and sacred poles? Joash says, that sounds like a plan. Priest comes, Joiada's son comes, prophesies to him, says, you're doing the wrong thing. What does Joash decide to do? Says, ah, kill him, off with his head. And he kills him. He's later, Joash himself is later killed. I just introduced that to just give you a little bit of, of color commentary to tell you that these things, it was not all good stuff. But it's interesting that over and over, especially, although I will note it happens more at the beginning, that it says the person was, the king was evil, but God still blessed Judah, quote, for David's sake. We see that in the beginning. 
Now, later on, it just says the kings are evil. It doesn't say anything else. That's probably a hint. And so the, and so what it is, God, because what we see here is God keeps his promise. God keeps his promise uh, that uh, he says, I will produce, uh, your, your son will be on the throne. He continues to do that. And eventually, though, disobedience becomes so great. You might think, well, they kept worshiping God in the temple, and they did. Now, they did with some really strange um, side events. We have a king who ends up in Damascus, and he sees, a, he sees a, a, an altar, and he decides, well, perhaps not entirely voluntarily, let's make a copy of that altar, and we'll stick it in the temple in Jerusalem. It's not good. So what happens there in this story is in the northern kingdom, whereas they completely abandoned even the artifice of the worship of God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the south, the formal worship of Yahweh and the at least official continuation of the Davidic monarchy is in place. But they also had high places and poles, and one king even sacrifices at least one of his children to a pagan god. You see, they have both. They think, well, we can do this and this. It's almost as though, you know, God promised us if we build the temple and we say the right words and we, we kill the right animals and we uh, celebrate the right holidays and the right family lives in the palace next door, we can do whatever we want. This turns out to be a very dangerous error. Who knew? And so we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. I'm not going to go through every king. I've kind of given you the, the big picture, uh, the big picture of these kings. Some were good, some were evil, some were evil and repented. Some were good and then became evil, like poor Joash. Um, but what we see here is the king, even, even, you know, sometimes even the good kings says, even at the same time, they worshiped Yahweh, but the people worshiped the other pagan gods. But in the midst of it, what does God do? God sends prophets. We talked about prophets a little bit last week. Prophets are people who are called. Uh, they are people that God calls specifically for a purpose. We think of prophets as people who tell the future, and in many of these cases they do, but also as people who just tell the truth about God. God tells them to say something, and they say it. It's usually uncomfortable, sometimes promising. And so we're going to look at some of these prophets tonight. The southern kingdom has this tremendous prophetic tradition. So let's look at the probably the longest one, uh, who is Isaiah. Isaiah, it's pretty, we, we, we have a pretty good idea from the text itself, the, the era of, uh, of Isaiah's ministry. It ended in the year that King Uzziah died. In chapter 6, verse 1, he says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And that happened probably about the year 740 B.C. 
the, the divided kingdom begins in 931, ends for, a, for northern kingdom in 732. So we're really in the final years, uh, years of great turmoil in the northern kingdom, but in years of some uh, stability and uh, some fear but stability in the southern kingdom. They had just come off Uzziah's 27-year reign. They were in the midst of Jotham's uh, 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 reign, which was, uh, which was another good king. Um, but the theme of Isaiah is one of judgment and renewal. Isaiah is 66 chapters long. Um, there is some dispute about Isaiah, whether it is a unified um, authorship. Now, it's interesting because Isaiah's time horizon is actually quite lengthy. He speaks about Cyrus, who, uh, who takes place about 200 uh, 200 plus years later, uh, and so some have suggested that there's two or even three books of Isaiah, one through 39, then 40 through 66, some breaking 55 to 66 as a third Isaiah, some suggesting that the entire thing is written at once. It's clear that if it's written as kind of contemporaneous present-day events, it extends past the lifetime of one individual. And so when you read a lot of these prophetic books, are they looking forward or are they looking back? Have you ever thought about it that way? You know, for example, is Isaiah writing in 700 about Cyrus, a man who would live 175 years later? It's certainly possible, isn't it? Or is this someone living in the 500s or even the 400s, looking back and finding an example, a reason why the exile happened? The exile is a meaningful moment in Israel's history, after all. Deliverance from slavery in Egypt, showing God's provision, but also the exile showing God's judgment. And that's a little bit what Isaiah talks about. When we look at Isaiah, uh, Isaiah begins very beginning. The first header in my book, of, in my, uh, which is not part of the text, and those are not inspired by God, as we believe the text itself is, was the wickedness of Judah. Verse 4, Ah, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring who do evil, children who deal corruptly, who have forsaken the Lord, who have despised the Holy One of Israel, who are utterly estranged. We just don't have preaching like that, do we, much these days? <laughs> And, you know, it's funny. Can you imagine if you were writing this in the, in, in, in the midst and between two good, two good kings? Uh, people, you know, and, and after all, saying, how can we be estranged? We are making the sacrifices just like the book tells us. We're saying all the right words. Our king is the right family. What could go wrong? Well, later, even in verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the teachings of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Incidentally, if uh, I don't know how many of you know your Bible trivia, but those aren't compliments. <laughs> I don't know if you remember those two cities. Last seen burning with sulfur. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fat fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. 
When you come to appear before me, who asked this from your hand? Trample my courts no more. Bringing offerings is futile. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocation. I cannot endure solemn assemblies with iniquity. Your new moons and your appointed festivals my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. See, the lesson of Isaiah, and I'm going to ruin the surprise, the lessons of the rest of the prophets are simple. Really worship God. Really treat God like he's God. And if he's God, then those other gods aren't. A lot of these kings are like, now which God can give me the best deal in battle? But if he's God, it's God. And what else does he say? Your hands are full of blood. You cannot come into the building and say, oh, I worship you, I give you this God, when secretly your heart and your life the other 167 hours of the week is not turned to him. Verse 16 continues, saying, kind of saying, if you want to come and make prayers to me, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. I'd like to say that's the only place in the Bible it says that, so, you know, it's kind of optional. That's not how it works. Then, in fact, over and over, we see those same commands. Seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. They are people to be defended, not oppressed. They are people to be loved, not to be crushed. The vulnerable don't exist for you to take advantage of them, God says. Verse 18. I don't know, is it warm in here or is it just me all of a sudden? Oh, wait. <laughs> That's the temperature in here. I don't know. There's a lot of hot air must be coming around in here. But I don't know, I'm feeling a little warm by this, this passage. It <laughs> could be both. Come now, let us argue it out, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see, God doesn't condemn. God gives them an opportunity. You can turn. You can do good. You can seek me. You can turn from your wicked ways. And your sins, your hands full of blood, can become white as snow. How many of you remember the Shakespearean tragedy Macbeth? There's like one scene everyone remembers, right? You remember Macbeth, Lady Macbeth? She's trying to get the spot of blood out, right? 
what happens? Is she able to? No. It's a constant reminder of the wickedness she had committed. She could not wash it out. So it's like this. But God says you can be forgiven. You can change. You can be turned. And so that is the offer that the prophets make to the people of Israel, that God, who is abundant in steadfast love, if you turn to him, you will be saved. But we find when Isaiah is called in verse 6, we, we, we usually end the reading when we say, when we hear verse 8, chapter 6, verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for me? And I said, here am I, send me. And so we said, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Hold on, verse 9. And God said, go and say to these people, keep listening but don't understand, comprehend. Keep looking but don't understand. Make the mind of this people dull and stop their eyes and shut their ears. They won't look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed. So, he said, so Isaiah says, I'll go. He says, great, you go. You give the word. Nobody's going to listen. He's like, well, how long do I have to go through uh, nobody listening? <laughs> and God said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is utterly desolate and the Lord sends everyone far away and bashes the emptiness in the midst of the land. Uh, even if there's a tenth left, it'll be burned again and like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains standing when it is felled. It's like, there's got to be an easier job than this. But alas, he goes. Because the last line in chapter thir verse 13, the holy seed, is its stump. See, Isaiah's judgment, Isaiah's about judgment, but also about renewal. You see, the people of Judah, they heard this and they said, well, actually, well, we're going to have our own plans. I don't know if that's ever happened. You know what you have to do, but you try to make plans to do something you think is better. So they thought, well, we can, uh, we'll just create an alliance with Egypt. Egypt and Babylon, they were the two big players on the scene. And so they tried to get in, you know, they tried to get in good with Egypt. It doesn't work. Isaiah says, well, you're going to, he even says, you're going to try to align yourself with Egypt to save yourself, but it won't work. Foreign alliances won't save you, only God can. But then eventually, it says, in the end, God will save you. One, he talks about Cyrus. I've got someone who doesn't even serve me. I'm going to use him to bring you back, to restore you. You see, God is their savior. God is their redeemer. You will never have a king strong enough or a military powerful enough to save you. If you do not turn, you will be judged. Your judgment and your renewal will come from God's hand. That's the story of Isaiah, and then over and over in Isaiah. When, when you know, we're going to hear a lot of Isaiah, by the way, coming up. And when are we going to hear a lot of Isaiah? Christmas. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin is with child, and will shall bear a son, and shall name him Emmanuel. That had two meanings. One, he was speaking to Ahaz, saying, you're going to have a son. Congratulations. But also we see it, and the Christian tradition sees it deeper than that. That there is hope. There is coming a day when a child will be born who will deliver you from this cycle of disobedience 
repentance and obedience and disobedience will deliver us. Isaiah chapter 9, right? Uh, For a child has been born for us, a son given, authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Anyone heard that before? You've heard Handel's Messiah? I won't sing it for you, but there's that. That's my favorite one. Actually, I like it more than Hallelujah Chorus. Is uh, Isaiah 9, 6. See, there is both judgment and renewal. And also saying that the people who condemn you, they may be, I may be using them, but I will judge them as well. So over and over, and it and, and they uses tremendous um, imagery, all these prophets do. There's a little bit of uh, narrative. Uh, last week I was reminded that, uh, that a chapter of Isaiah and a chapter, I think, of Second Chronicles uh, are identical, word for word. It's like he just stuck it in there. About Hezekiah, chapter 37. But then later, also, when we get in, this is why many believe it's a second thing. There's a little bit of a change at verse 40, talking about the return of Israel and how God is going to use Israel as a servant to deliver the nations. Uh, some of these are famous lines uh, where, uh, for example, in, uh, in chapter 43, where it says, Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Speaks about the servant. Some of you are familiar with the chapter 53. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity, as in one from whom others hide their face. He was despised. We held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken struck down by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, once again, we have this, this story that the first readers would have seen as identifying Israel as God's people in their return as having a mission, as a light to the nation, as one who serves on behalf of the nations, but also God brings it to messianic truth in Jesus Christ. That not only will Israel be a servant, but God says, I will give my own son And we see that the story of Jesus bears out these prophecies as well. And so with Isaiah, we have judgment, we have rescue, we have renewal, and we have the promise in the midst of this, only seen later in the time of Jesus, of everlasting covenant. After all, Jesus is the ultimate son of David, who sits on the throne. That's Isaiah. The one after that is Jeremiah. Jeremiah lives about a century later. He is uh, from 627 B.C. through the time of the exile. And in Jeremiah, once again, he speaks on this same thing, uh, this call 
uh, to repent. Uh, Jeremiah is young, and in fact, it makes clear in Jeremiah 1, verse 9 and 10, that God has put God's own words into Jeremiah's mouth. And that's what he does. And God, through Jeremiah, begs the people of Israel to repent. I, I spoke about this recently. Jeremiah chapter 2, famous imagery of the people of God who have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. Once again, confronting the problem of Israel, which is that they have abandoned in their hearts, at least, the worship of God and turned to the worship of false gods. The fountain of living water instead digging out cisterns. And I, I've talked about how those cisterns were those pits in the limestone rock and how in Kentucky we know about limestone. We know that it's porous, right? And stuff leaks out. And so they tried to line it with plaster, but the plaster, as anyone who lives in an old house knows, plaster cracks and the water would leak out. And it said you could have a spring. Instead, you have settled for leaky, stagnant water. And the people seem to be okay with this. Now, there are times of, uh, in fact, later Jeremiah, in fact, in, in, directly prophesies, and, and the scriptures say they were, he was ignored. Jeremiah, I love Jeremiah. Jeremiah is in many ways the most personally involved of the prophets. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. Jeremiah, when he confronts the people, he himself is thrown into a cistern. I think that's not an accident. He, he threatens you, he said, exile will be your future if you do not turn, but the people do not turn. Speaks about specific kings. And it's interesting, and there in the very last moment, Jeremiah lives to see to see, uh, to see the attack of the Babylonians. Uh, Jeremiah ends up being taken off actually to Egypt. And then he, he sends letters eventually. This goes through the time of the exile. But Jeremiah is, is very much personally involved. He stays connected. And then he promises, once again, that continued theme, right? What's the, theme, how, how, what's the, the kind of the double-edged of these prophets? It's judgment and promise. Judgment and promise. And he promises there will come a day when the people who survived will return. Jeremiah 31 talks about that. I am going to bring them from the land of the north, it's verse 8, and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among the, the blind and the lame, those with child and those in labor together, a great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come with consolations, I will lead them back. I will let them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I have become a firstborn to Israel, a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. It, Jeremiah is personally involved. He buys a field during the siege. We find that in verse 32. Uh, you know, who buys land in a place that's about to be destroyed? Apparently Jeremiah does. That's a way he is personally invested. Jeremiah is personally invested in this. He does not stand to the side. He does not stand as an outsider. He is an insider. Uh, he is an insider to, uh, to this story. Uh, he, he takes part in it himself. He, he also goes off to exile uh, though, 
and promise comes. And he promises that one day God will return them. Let's talk about the prophet of the prophet Joel. The prophet Joel. Joel uh, Joel is one of the minor prophets. Those uh, they are uh, Joel once again both judgment and promise once again uh, judgment in terms of speaking of the day of the Lord. You know, many people said, "Well, the day of the Lord." They said, "Well, that would be the day that all our enemies." Uh, our enemies fall apart and we will be lifted up. And he says, no, the day of the Lord will be a day where you will be judged as well. And in Joel chapter 2, he says, uh, you can return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who relents from punishing. You can turn to him. And then he says later, he says there is a promise. Interesting, 2.28. You might have heard this before, not in Joel, somewhere else. Afterward I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days I will pour out my spirit. Have you heard that before? Where is it other than in Jeremiah and Joel? Where is it in the New Testament? Does anyone know? No? No, close. Where is it? Acts. Where in Acts? Do you know? She's like, really give me a break. I got you the right book of the Bible. In Acts, chapter 2. The famous speech of Peter on the day of Pentecost. Actually, it's one of the funniest passages. Acts chapter 2, I won't keep you too long on this. It says, this is when Peter stands. The, the people have been said, the people, the, the, the crowd has said, this crowd that's now speaking in all these different languages and that people are hearing in all the different languages. People have come from all around the Jewish diaspora, the places where Jews had been scattered uh, through the exile and afterwards. They had all come back for this, this, uh, this special festival, Pentecost, and, and the Spirit comes and every one of them, even though they live hundreds of miles away, they're seeing these uneducated people speaking in their language and they can't believe it. And some sneered and said they are drunk. Peter stands with them and says, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. I'm reading this just for this 15th verse. Indeed, these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only 9 o'clock in the morning. I think that's the funniest verse in the whole Bible, personally. I heard someone once say, well, I wouldn't be as confident as Peter is. He says, no, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, in the last days it will be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. You see all these promises? They all have this, this forward looking, and that 
as we can see them, we can see them in the context of what God has done in Jesus Christ through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, through the work of the church. It is a promise to this ongoing, continuing problem of disobedience. Micah continues talking about that. Again, he is another one who speaks about both idolatry but also social sin. I know many people, probably some of you in here, one of your favorite verses comes from Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. Uh, it, it, it comes at the end of, uh, one of, of a great passage, once again confronting the people who believe that as long as we say the right words and bring the right animals... He says, no. Should you come with burnt offerings, a calves a year old, thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I even sacrifice my firstborn child like they do to the pagan gods for my transgression? The most poetic line I can think of right now, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. And Micah says, he has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love God kindness or mercy and to walk humbly with your God. See, that's Micah saying that how you, what you believe, how you worship, it will come over into how you live. That instead of violence and deception and crooked business, uh, they talk about false scales, you know, they, they didn't have digital scales like you and I had. They had those, you know, weights, right? And so you'd have this block and you say, this is three pounds. You stick it on and you weigh out the fruit or the vegetables and, you know, you weigh it out. There's three pounds, right? Well, what if it's marked three pounds and it's really 2.2 pounds, right? Someone's cheating. That's what they're talking about there. So if you're selling it for $5 a pound and you're getting 15 pounds for 2.2 pounds, how much are you really making? You're really making like $7 a pound. See, you've just cheated them. you cheated them. That was rampant in Micah's day. In Habakkuk, uh, it talks, Habakkuk uh, talks about how Judah's wickedness is becoming extreme. It says that, that it's so extreme that God is losing credibility. These people are so bad that after a while, uh, you know, God's got to do something. <laughs> And the Babylonians serve as God's judge. Zephaniah talks about religious degradation. The words are there, but the heart is not. Social apathy. The words are there, but the heart is not. But judgment here, not destruction, but purification. Do you see the difference between the south and the north? In the north, it's destruction. Judgment means destruction. Judgment means removal. But in the south, there is hope. For the sake of David, through whom comes the Son, Jesus. And so eventually destruction comes. Kings and Chronicles both tell us that Babylon comes, attacks in three waves, one in 605, one in 597, one in 587, 586. Uh, 597 speaks at some length that all the rulers are left. It says all the rulers, all the skilled people, and all that are left are the very poor. And then in 587, all the, it says that and then... It, you read some of these histories and you see kind of some slight things that kind of confuse you. But then they still have a king and apparently the king still has a court of his own. And the king tries to rebel and five, they install a new king, a guy named Zedekiah. Uh, that king tries to rebel uh, but fails. And Babylon comes, 586. The king tries to escape. But then they find him and 
his family and kill his sons in front of him, poke out his eyes and drag him off to Babylon. And Jerusalem is destroyed. And Lamentations leaves us. Lamentations is a great book about uh, wailings, Greek, and wailings over destruction of Jerusalem. It retells that painful story probably from the position of exile. And Lamentations are those that ask the question, why? Why did this happen? Now, you know, sometimes we say that, and when it's really clear why something happened, and that's what the book tells us, but also in the midst of Lamentations, a glimmer of hope. See, God listens to them. I think it's funny. God listens to them. They say, why did this happen to me? God's like, have you read the book? You know exactly why this happened to you, but God still listens. You see, God's still willing to listen to our lamentation even when maybe it's our own fault something has happened. And then Ezekiel, one of the most... I wish we had more time to talk about Ezekiel. Ezekiel is taken in that 597 exile that when all the leadership is taken away. And he is a prophet through... And, but he's not a prophet yet. He was only 25 then and he becomes a prophet in the midst of exile. And it's that great, it's these great images. I think, you know, I don't know why he uses more images except possibly to say that in exile using images rather than direct speech was a subversive way. He speaks about that. And in Ezekiel, once again, we see the promise not just that they will return, which it shows they will return to Jerusalem. Their exile will not last forever, but that God will come and breathe into the dry bones of his people and will bring forth life. That the rocky heart will be replaced with a heart of flesh. That's chapters 30, uh, 37 and uh, I believe 39. And that's where the, the prophets lead us is that God will come and bring renewal not just through returning Israel but through one additional way that he will come and redeem the people but use Israel not just because Israel existed for the blessing of the nations but through Israel he really will bless the nations through offering uh, a new start and a new life uh, to those who, who need it and we see that coming in fullness in the Messiah in Jesus Christ who promises that we can receive a new heart a new start a new life uh, if we turn to him. And so that's where we're going to start. We're going to talk next week about the exile itself and the return, and we're going to prepare ourselves for what God is up to in the fullness of time sending Jesus, because this all points to Jesus. I don't know if you noticed that tonight. It all points to Jesus. It all points that, 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 that the, the, the sin they commit is not unique to them, but it is uh, shown as a shadow in, in ourselves even today, and uh, that God has promised us we can turn to Him. And he is faithful and just to forgive us. You see, Israel had compromised on their calling to be a light to the nations. They had let the nations be a light to them. And God, through exile, would purify them, would restore them, and, would, and we'll talk about next week, will bring them back to once again be part of his plan 
in saving the world.